0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, it's the end of the year. It's it's almost December, Tyler, 2023. Um, It's been a hell of a year, and um, normally, of course, you and I have on some scintillating guests to talk about a coastal issue or two and i always enjoy those of course but once in a while you and i just get to talk about what we think about the world and uh what we think about 2023 so this is a show is about what you and i are up to these days there's a lot going on in the world
1: peter and we've had an exciting year uh on this podcast on the podcast network and just in our lives you relocated to the pacific northwest i Took on a new job in the world of marine robotics. It's been an exciting uh, year in the realm of coastal and ocean news and science. So every once in a while, Peter, we just have to talk, man. We just have to we just have to air it out on the show. Uh, our our wonderful listeners are gonna are gonna hear what we have to say, and it's gonna be awesome. And thank you thank you all for listening. But th- this is really gonna be a great show. We have some really cool
0: updates to share with you. But before we jump into it, Tyler. A word from our sponsors.
2: Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising.
0: Well, Tyler... Um Welcome to the show. (laughs) It's good to have you on the show. It's good to have me on the show. It's good to do this show with you. I mean, we're going to be talking about this year. It's been, as you said, it's been a monumental year for both you and I personally and professionally, because this year you started at Blue Robotics, which um, as I've learned more about this company and what you're working on, um, it's very cool. And I'm, just uh, I want to know more about it um, so what what what's up with you? How is this job working out? what are you guys up to?
1: Well, let me give a little background just to kind of set the scene yeah. Peter and first of all, um, you know I, I you Peter Ravella, you brought me into the coastal professional universe uh, it was it was way back in our Austin days you know 2017 period, 2016 period yeah when we had those first beers. Uh, there at the draft house and you were showing me satellite imagery of various places around the American shoreline where you were working and you were describing the work you were doing. And I just remember being completely transfixed by uh, the issues you were talking about. And I wanted to join your team and uh, learn about this realm. And that, that set me onto a course that I I had no idea where it would take me at that Mm. point. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think we understood that it would lead no. to uh, this podcast and Coastal News Today and this whole media storytelling realm of uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. But uh, the other kind of element here is that it launched, for me personally, it launched a career as an ocean professional. And as careers go, you don't really know what's going to happen. You kind of You kind of surf the wave, don't you? And um, yeah, so I ended up uh, getting a job at Blue Robotics, which I've never been, I've never, you know, I'm not a roboticist, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody out there knows that. I'm not a technical engineer guy. I'm a people person. Um, But I have been working with Blue Robotics for about, oh, nine months now uh, in the business development game, trying to expand our uh, market into other realms of the blue economy outside of where we kind of were already active. And we've been doing some really cool stuff that I want to share.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's all about these instruments, these, they're not autonomous, right? They can, or are they robots that can survey and uh, explore off uh, shore underwater? I mean, what's the, what's the, I know we did a show on this at kind of, a while back, but um, but I really want to know more about the product. I mean, it really is it really is cool. Totally. And first of all, I don't mind
1: saying it again because most most folks out there, unless you work with marine robotic technology, it's it's a blur. It's a total blur. I I do work with marine robotic technology, and I can barely keep track of everything. But um, you know, Blue Robotics as a company doesn't just make vehicles, we make components, we make enclosures, we make thrusters, we make uh, all sorts of all of the various Lego bits you can imagine that go into things like vehicles. And uh, as, as far as autonomy goes, you know, they can be autonomous, they can also be tethered and controlled from the surface, it kind of depends on the specific vehicle and the specific type of application that a user is going for.
0: Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this, Tyler, that, um, you know, you and I were down in Fort Lauderdale for, was it ASBPA, wasn't it? Um, a couple of years ago, probably three or four years ago. And, uh, Fort Lauderdale boat show is a huge thing, but the yachting industry down there is gigantic. And, you know, I, I just, I don't know why every person who has one of these, you know, super yachts and big old boats, people spend all this money on these things, they all need an autonomous robot, Uh, they need, they need it. They need it. They need a blue robotics robot on board. I mean, that just seems to me like in the marketing game, I, you know, I'm not in the business you're in. So, but I'm telling you, man, I mean, wouldn't you want, if you had that boat and you were down in the Caribbean, wouldn't you want to drop that thing over the side and go take a look at what's on the bottom or maybe find your anchor or maybe, you know what I mean? It just seems like everybody who's got one of those boats needs to have one of these uh, blue robotics things.
1: Definitely, but l- let, mean, me, let me
0: let uh, me let me just do a quick. There you go. That's my two cents advice.
1: And that that is that advice is genuinely worth no more than two cents because I want to <laughs> I want to uh, I want to clarify a few I want to f- clarify a few marine robotics terms because we're throwing around the term autonomy and you know unlike in the atmosphere when you fly a drone around. Uh, and you're able to control it without a tether. In the water, it's very difficult to communicate from point A to point B through the water with any sort of high bandwidth. So the 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 reason for autonomy, uh, there's many reasons for autonomy, but one of the main reasons for autonomy when you're dealing with marine robotics is that you just can't communicate without a tether if you if you're in the water. So you need your robot to kind of just run its program, and that is what autonomy is. Now, Blue Robotics makes uh, two distinct types of vehicles that we're going to talk about. The first one is an autonomous surface vessel, which cruises around on its own. It can be controlled through a base station, like directly, like a remote control boat. Okay, and then the other vehicle that we have is a an ROV. Now, this is not an autonomous vehicle out of the box. It's controlled from the surface from your laptop. It's got a camera on board. So it's kind of like it's kind of like, you know, you're scuba diving, if you will, except you are occupying a little robot in your mind. You know, you're the the, the robot is down there, you're up on the surface, but you're controlling it from the surface. And there is a tether that leads from that little robot all the way up to your computer that allows you to control it and allows you to see the camera image and communicate. Um, so you just, just to, to okay. kind of set that out. Um, but to, to bring it back. Yeah. There's a tremendous value. I mean, think about it. Whenever you're on or near the water as a human, as a terrestrial, unless you're snorkeling or scuba diving, you don't really see what's underneath the surface. You just see the surface of the water. And in our minds, we say, there's the water. And we know in some sort of abstraction that there's, depth to it that it's a three-dimensional media but we don't really we can't just as 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 humans we just can't go there and that's what this technology can do it allows you to go there so if you're a boat owner if you're on a yacht it could be you know why not try to understand what's underneath you and there's other ways to do that you can use sonar you can use other types of uh, imagery to yeah. detect what's underneath you but Absolutely. I mean, think about just an activity as uh, mundane as as dropping your anchor and setting your anchor on a boat. I mean, who out there would wonder, you know, where, what's my anchor sitting on? And is it it, has it caught sufficiently? Well, in the old days, <laughs> prior to this technology, the way you'd answer that question is to dive on your anchor. You'd actually throw your mask on, throw your fins on, and go and look at it with your eyes and with this technology you could throw your rov into the water and swim it down to the anchor and take a look at it and while you're down there you might take a look at the surrounding area it just brings the whole underwater world to your fingertips and it's freaking amazing
0: i mean that to me that's the, the the cool part it's the visualization possibility and um I don't know there's so many extraordinary you know if, if depending on the circumstances and what part of the world you're in I mean but really the opportunity to kind of like uh t- to knock around underwater and to really get a feel for what the habitat is and uh what the conditions are and what critters are available or um present um you know you want to know and um god I could just it would be fascinating if I If I was on board a boat and had a chance to just shoot this thing around and drive it wherever I wanted to go, um, you could spend hours um, looking around. And then maybe, maybe if you find something extraordinarily interesting that you like, you know, put on your gear and go down. Um, But Totally. totally. It seems like a cool company, and it's not just all about recreation. It's also about science. I mean, these these damn platforms uh, are are pretty sophisticated now. Don't you guys load them up with all kinds of cool instruments if you want? I mean, it's sort of optional for people, but
1: yeah. And I again, just to to set the scene a little bit, you know, um, you know, Peter, I'm I'm an old Bob Ballard fanatic, and James Cameron and the Titanic, the movie Titanic, is like a huge. Influence in my life. In fact, I, I, I would say that, uh, one of my earrings is an ode to Bill Paxton in that movie. Um, I just love that movie, but, uh, you know, that era of ROV, these little robots that could like, you know, go down and explore the Titanic. These things cost millions of dollars. And, um, you know, I, I, for years and years and years, I mean, it's, it was like, the the barrier the cost barrier to an rov was just crazy but if you think about you know 10 20 years ago think about aerial drones and think about like the first time you ever saw one and it was you know they they, they were extremely expensive they were like something that maybe the military would operate uh off of the back of like a naval ship or something and over the period of the past 20 years, the cost of these things have come down. Um, there's a, there are several reasons for that that we, will, we won't we will discuss right now, but um, the biggest one is just computing has become so much more cost-effective to own little computers. Computers are are everywhere now, and they're not terribly expensive. You can buy a little Raspberry Pi computer for a couple hundred bucks or less. So. What's happened here in the ROV realm and what Blue Robotics, the company I work for, has done is it's democratized the, the marine technology space by bringing the cost of these technologies down from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands to now thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars, tens of dollars. And what this means is that what was once considered to be just like, you know, a pie in the sky, you know, military type of toy is now the sort of thing that researchers, boaters, students, etc., can get their hands on and use. And it it really is a game changer when, when millions of people all of a sudden can explore the ocean, explore the underwater universe in a brand new way.
0: I hope that's true. And uh, one of the things you're working on is trying to get Young people and uh, kids, especially, and schools to take an interest in using this equipment and and having robotics teams or something in high school. now now, Tyler, I love this idea because this is this is d- just the technical skill of understanding the equipment is is highly valuable as an educational exercise, but also the ability to put the thing in the water and see what's there is also amazing. So what's the scoop with the with the school thing?
1: Well, and again, I just have to say that this podcast and, and learning about the various elements of the blue economy has just been so useful for me uh, in, in this blue robotics position. But, you know, one of the one of the groups we've learned about, Peter, uh, on ASPN, uh, really through Tim Galludet's show, the American Blue Economy podcast, uh, was the Mate ROV competition? This is a, a a national, in fact, an international competition that brings high school students, and there's even some like uh, junior college level clubs. But they compete with each other with little ROVs that they build, and um, it's it's taken off like wildfire. I mean, pr- particularly these days, I'll tell you what: if, if if you're a parent out there and you've got a, a kid in junior high or high school age level there's a good chance that they're like robotics is like it's just so hot everybody wants their kids learning about robotics um and the the beauty of marine robotics in in the education space is is that it unlocks the underwater world which is like super exciting for kids just to you know to unlock this universe that they could otherwise not explore it kind of reminds me peter of building rockets did you ever build a rocket when you were a kid you know
0: yeah, Estes Rocket. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's kind of like yeah. that, where you could like yeah. shoot a rocket yeah, into we the sky. It, you know, this is a whole. Yeah, we had we had. This that. is a whole other level, and uh, exploring the underwater world is a similar uh, universe of of exploration that fires kids up. And my boss, Alisa Miller, friend of the pod, came on, talked about uh, her co founding of Blue Robotics. Go back and listen to that episode if you're interested. Uh, she gave me kind of an inspirational goal. And she said she would like to see an ROV in every high school. And that got me thinking about how ROVs could be used in education. And I I actually went out and met with a bunch of teachers uh, and and administrators uh, at the high school level. And one of my old teachers, who is now the assistant superintendent at Ventura Unified School District, looked at a picture of the ROV and he said, wow, this thing is a lens into the ocean. And he encouraged me to look at the ROV instead of as a robotics curriculum thing, which of course it is, and it's already being used in that respect. He encouraged me to look at it as a tool for the broader campus, for kids who are not interested in robotics or not interested in engineering, but might be interested in exploring the ocean, might be interested in fish, might be interested in archaeology. And so this launched a brand new initiative uh, that we kicked off at Blue Robotics that we're calling the Education Initiative and we created a technology partnership with Ventura Unified School District, and for the past six months, I have been working to expose kids in the high school level to ROV technology outside of the robotics realm. And Peter, it has been one of the coolest professional things I have ever done. It's taken me out to the Channel Islands with kids, with these robots, and man, it's just I, I I'm I feel so privileged to ha- to be able to do this, and to see what the the way these children light up when they're exploring the ocean in this brand new way.
0: All right, I got a net. I mean, this was very very cool. It was recently because you I you mentioned it to me uh, about I guess about a week or so ago that you had gone on this trip. Um, on a NOAA research vessel with a group of kids and a Blue Robotics uh, robot aquatic, you know, platform. Um, It sounded like an extraordinary trip and a very cool thing to do. Um, So fill us in.
1: What happened? Turns out here in Southern California and throughout California, uh, there are quite a few uh, national marine sanctuaries, as we know, and we've talked about them. And uh, these these National Marine Sanctuaries just do, I mean, my Lord, I'm learning so much about how amazing the sanctuary system is, Peter. And we got to do more shows on this. And I i i pledge, dear listeners, we will do more on this. we I will get the bona fide experts on this podcast so we can talk about this program. But um, I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into. I I uh I knew that we'd be going out on a boat with some kids. I brought the ROV. I brought a colleague of mine to operate the ROV, make sure that everything was running smoothly. Um, but I what I did not expect is that we would be going on a NOAA research vessel. Uh this vessel is called the Shearwater. Uh she's a aluminum uh catamaran specifically designed for the channel islands national marine sanctuary which operates this vessel and it is a killer vessel and on board we went with about 15 kids there was a real scientist on board and our scientific mission for this day at sea was to go to a little cove on anacapa island called frenchy's cove and to collect uh data from the rocky intertidal area and this is a part of a program that's called limpets peter limpets which makes it's a great you know classic name for a government program is that it was a acronym uh that of course is named after the little critter that lives on the the rocks in the rocky intertidal area. A mollusk, you know. A mollusk. But, there we go.
0: Yes, yeah. it's not a bivalve. No, limpet. No, yeah, but it's not,
1: not a, a bivalve.
0: Phylum mollusca, I
1: believe it is. Very good. <laughs> and uh, I mean, for you know, it's just I had never, I've, Peter, I had never been on a NOAA research vessel of any type before, so I was kind of blown away at the opportunity. It was so cool, and um. Out we went, and there on the schedule was ROV activities. And uh, man, we we threw we went out to the Anacapa Island and threw the ROV in and drove around and looked. I mean, the everyone on the boat was like amazed. Like the captain of the boat was amazed. The this lead researcher was amazed. But you know, the technology has come a long way.
0: Did you have a good screen? I mean, it was on a laptop or did they have like a larger monitor that everybody could kind of see?
1: We had a larger monitor. We were in the cockpit of the Shearwater, which is like, it's a very large cockpit area designed to have a bunch of people in it, which is a a neat feature of that vessel. And uh, it was just super fricking cool.
0: How many kids though? How many, like how many kids were on board and where were they from?
1: I would estimate that there were about 15 kids on board, and they hailed from all over Santa Barbara and Ventura counties. Uh, there were multiple teachers, you know, each each teacher had a few kids with them, maybe as many as five or six, um, some were there with one or two, um, and, you know, some of these kids came from more inland school districts, and others, you know, like... Uh, uh, the Ventura Unified School District was present with uh, Mr. Michael York, who's been a, a, an environmental science teacher and very helpful in this initiative um, for us. But uh, what I want to say is if, you know, I I was just blown away. If I was a kid and had this opportunity, I think it would change my life um, just to, to go out to see on a real science vessel with real scientists who are really doing field research uh, was just so yeah. cool. and. The pinnacle of this trip, I want to say that the ROV operations were a huge smash. It was extremely cool to see everyone kind of blown away by the technology. But I want to share that uh, just how cool it was that these kids were then landed ashore via the dinghy and hiked over to the survey area where a transect line was put out. And these kids using, Peter, those little,
0: you know, those little grid squares that you use in... Yeah, yeah, the meter, one meter squares, sample areas along a transect line, yes. That's right,
1: and they they broke up into teams, and they all took little
0: areas, and they would go and
1: catalog every little critter on the rocks. And ladies and gentlemen, as you can imagine, this is the rocky intertidal area, so... Uh, at high tide, this area is completely submerged. Uh, and at low tide, it's dry. So in order to conduct this operation, first of all, the date, November fourteenth was like circled on the calendar for like a year. I mean, they knew that this would be the time to do this because of course, the tide had to be going out. Uh, you needed to have enough time. It had to be daylight. It had to be school a school day. It couldn't be a holiday. It you know, there's just a whole when you start to think about the logistics of conducting this sort of scientific survey with students on the Anacapa Island, which is a part of the Channel Islands National Park, whew, it's not an easy operation to pull off. And I just yeah, I just have to say how amazing the NOAA National Marine Sanctuary staff were uh, who pulled this whole thing
0: off. So what's the so where did you depart from and this is not sort of like a, a you know 10 minute little boat ride out there like where did you guys leave from and how long does it take to get out to Anacapa
1: So the Shearwater is based out of Santa Barbara Harbor so we left out of Santa Barbara Harbor at about 8:30 in the morning and the cruise out to Anacapa Island was approximately an hour maybe a little bit longer Uh, While we were in transit out, we ran into a megapod of dolphins and we actually saw uh, a minke whale uh, out there. So, you know, it's like magic, Peter, as you know. It's just when you go to sea, it's just it's just strap yourself in for kind of a magical uh, adventure and. We took we took our time getting out there. We weren't motoring particularly quickly. We saw the whales. We saw the dolphins. We saw lots of bird activity, but yeah, it's a it's a big trip out. It it we probably didn't arrive at the island until about oh ten thirty eleven in the morning. We conducted about an hour of ROV operations, and then came the the logistics of landing all of these kids and the scientists and the, the chaperones onto the shore.
0: So you have like the the Zodiac dinghy kind of thing where everybody had to pile in and, and run, you know, like a bunch of, a bunch of sorties to the shore to get everybody over there.
1: That's right. And it was like, you know, it was like Starfleet, you know, it's like, I'm just in, so the, the captain, you know, the, the captain dons his, his like away mission gear they lower this dinghy in using like a Davit. And it's a it's a rigid haul, semi-rigid haul, uh, you know, inflatable kind of zodiac kind of boat, as you describe. And the first thing they have to do is find a suitable landing site. And, you know, it's it's the, the waves are breaking, the tide is going out, and they've got to do this landing operation fairly quickly so that they can get the kids into the observation site and get them going with, you know, enough time so that they can complete the data collection and then get them off and back on the boat so we can get home. So it was just an incredible operation. The the crew were so professional and so skilled to be able to do this. And, of course, they got to ferry the kids over at about four or five at a time. It's not like you can just, boom, bring them all over. You got to take them over and shift. So it was quite an operation.
0: Noah, you got to love Noah. And uh, the National Marine Sanctuary System... Uh, is fantastic and uh, I'm so glad that you, you did it. And I have to ask, um, so you had an hour of ROV time. What was the water clarity and what was the coolest thing that you guys were able to observe?
1: Well, the water clarity was exceptional around Anacapa. Uh, we actually deployed the ROV in a couple locations and uh, one of the things that I I have to say really struck, struck me was, uh, seeing an urchin barren for the first time uh, this was an area that had once been a kelp forest but the purple yeah. urchins have had just decimated it and of course the purple urchins were still there i've never seen so many purple urchins in my life and uh it was just
0: yeah, ecosystem out of balance you know
1: the system is it was definitely out of balance in that particular location but then in another location uh we were near an eelgrass bed and Uh, it was, I, I, I didn't know anything about eelgrass, but on board the boat was a, an eelgrass scientist and she was just, you know, she was like Miss Frizzle from the magic school bus. Her excitement (laughs) level was just contagious. Right. And, you know, I didn't realize Peter that eelgrass is like a flowering plant and produces pollen and it pollinates itself via pollen floating in the water. I mean, I had no idea.
0: yeah, yeah. Seagrass is incredible habitat, highly productive. You know, talked about everywhere along the American shoreline. It's you know a special aquatic uh, um, site. Are these things that you know are hard, are highly looked after? Hopefully, um, and so delicate. Yeah, so delicate. Get, yeah, Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy to screw up. You know.
1: Yes, and in fact, we saw an area. Uh, they allow lobster fishing. Um, in a particular part there of Anacapa, adjacent to the eelgrass beds, and where the lobster traps are, there is no eelgrass because those pots, just the weight of the pot and the action of recovering the pot, pulling it off the bottom, rips those very delicate rhizomes out of the sand. And so it's just, it's one of those habitats that's so delicate, so fragile to human activity, But also so important for nursery activity, and you know, I'm sure there's a whole myriad of uh, benefits to the ecosystem there. Um, But man, it was just it was so cool, and of course, the ROV performed so well. The this particular scientist, Miss Frizzle, she she was so (laughs) impressed that you could see each rhizome on you know with the HD camera on board the uh, ROV. So this was you know unique to her. She was accustomed to if you wanted to look at uh, eelgrass this way, you had to dive. And so, as you were saying at the beginning of the show, Peter, uh, you use the ROV, it, it, it saves on your bubble time. You don't have to be down in the water as much, and that means that when you do go in the water, you can be more intentional and deliberate about how you use your bubble time, yeah, which is... Uh, it's
0: a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Absolute no-brainer. You got to do it. So, um, I want to know about these urchin barons. I mean, what did they... What did they say is the explanation for this explosion of the purple urchins, which have had a devastating effect on the kelp forest, as you say, because they crunch they crunch the, uh, the attachment system that the kelp uses uh, to attach to the rock. And, 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 and so they end up just, you know, wiping it out. But what, why? What's going on? What did they say? What did you learn about that? Well,
1: uh, it's, it's a complicated story. Um, you know, the first, so it, it's a sign that the ecosystem's out of balance, uh, is the first thing when you see this explosion, you know. And of course, part of the, you know, perhaps one of the major keystone uh, balancers on the California coast are the sea otters that historically yeah. inhabited all of the Channel Islands uh, and really the entire California coastal area. Now, there have been really effective reintroduction measures. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has has like led the way on this. And in fact, I was up in Cambria about a month ago, Peter, and I saw wild sea otters like, you know, smashing, you know, mussels on their chest with rocks like in the yeah. wild, like they're yeah. just out there doing it. Um, but unfortunately, and it's not exactly understood why. But uh, reintroduction efforts south of Point Conception have just not taken with the sea otter. Oh, so already we have an out-of-balance element that with, with no sea otters. But the other element that has really uh, allowed the purple urgent to explode is the absence, the recent loss of
0: starfish. The starfish, yeah. The starfish collapse on the West Coast that is a disease problem, I believe, is what they've you know, climate related, perhaps, but uh, a virus, right?
1: I'm not exactly sure what the what the driving cause is they call it starfish wastings disease. Yeah. And, um, you know, for example, the the scientist uh, on board said, if you see a starfish scream, because it was like that they were so eager to see one. And we d- I don't believe we saw any uh, wow. on this trip um but yeah th- that's an important animal in the balancing of the ecosystem
0: right that predator and 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 the otters but it really i mean and this was you know coastal news today back when these when these surveys were really being scientifically talked about in the press we definitely ran a bunch of stories about it but the loss rate is, you know, in some areas like ninety percent of the population was lost in certain parts of the of the west coast of the United States uh, uh, of these starfish. So um, you know, it has a huge impact when this kind of stuff goes on. Um, it's a little bit, you know, like the loss of of the crab population in the Bering Sea. Billions of crabs are not there. Um, so you were starting to see these large scale systematic changes in the marine environment that um you know we don't have a handle on no altogether uh what the hell's happening why it's happening or what if anything can be done about it i mean that's there's a lot of work to do and why these science um cruises and why these why NOAA's uh you know uh, core and the research vessels and all of this stuff is essential and, and really underfunded in my opinion i mean really Honestly, we should be spending more money on on marine research and and NOAA's research vessel fleet because there is a lot to know. And it makes a big damn difference in the environmental health uh, on the American shoreline, but also the economic health of the American shoreline.
1: No question about it. Um, We need to do more science and this stuff needs to be plussed up. We need to do uh, Peter. uh, It's so cool that we get to talk about this stuff on this podcast yeah it is we have to share the word so the the what what brought me out on the water here was this program this limpets program and i just want to hit it i want to hit some bullets on this program because it was so cool and it it's it's an example of what the national marine sanctuary system can do um so, the idea of limpets, the and and believe it or not, the the originator of the limpets program was aboard the cruise. Uh, so twenty years ago, she had she was a fellow, um, I believe, with California Sea Grant, and she wrote the initial grant proposal for this limpets program. And twenty years later, this program has been in existence, and she was there to see what had come of it. and it's it's an incredible success story. Um, but I, you know, California has several national uh, marine sanctuaries up and down the coast, and the idea of limpets was to connect these national marine sanctuaries through citizen science, and specifically through students and educators, and by bringing them out to these sites and to help collect data. And uh, the, of course, the the focus is on this rocky intertidal zone. And as I've already indicated, this is a this is a difficult area to study. You know, it's it's half submerged, so half the time you can't you can't study it, and uh, the other half the time it's you know it's the rocky intertidal zone. It's it's covered with sharp mollusks and muscles and it's yeah. just it's a challenging area to study it's also a beautiful area it's some of my favorite habitat these kind of tide pooly the tide pool thing. oh it's just so it's like it's almost like a coral reef in a way it's just loaded yeah. with life
0: yeah and and there's this real transition i mean it's all about i remember this in marine biology when i was at a as we did these surveys based on elevation along the shore um uh, there's a whole gradation of critters that exist in this fluctuating zone. And as the and on the deeper end, there are certain kinds of densities of certain kind of critters. And as you move up in elevation and up to the top of the tidal range, it changes a little bit. And um, that's all uh, understanding that uh, sequence of transition in these areas is really what that's. It's such a cool thing for kids. And so cool. the general public, to understand these damn environments, they're so amazing and complex and rich, but you have to, you know, it's hard to look carefully. You, it, you have to have some training to, to understand what the hell you're looking at. So it's cool.
1: And the way that this program works, so, you know, California has about 600 miles of coastline and the Limpets program has over 60 sites. So these are sites that citizen scientists go to every year annually and collect data. So it's a longitudinal study that allows researchers to see how this rocky intertidal space is changing over time. And Frenchy's Cove is one of those sites. So we went to just one of over 60 sites on the California coast. And just to give you an idea, Peter, you know, we had, I'm guessing about Six uh, about fifteen kids uh on board this this vessel for our trip. Every year, about six thousand people go out and participate in the Limpets program.
0: Is Limpets is Limpets a no? Is is it a NOAA program? Is is Limpets a NOAA sponsored, NOAA created, or is the origin You mentioned the originator was on board. If you remember, what who who was who? What's her name? And is she yeah. Is this a, is this a NOAA deal?
1: The program is a consortium of uh, the national marine sanctuaries that are along the California coast, as well as the California Coastal Commission, the California Ocean Protection Council. Oh yeah, um, and I believe maybe a couple other state agencies, including, okay. uh, uh, you know, California Sea Grant is involved and it's an incredible program uh the the originator don uh is a person peter who i'm going to bring on this show i'm working on it as we speak she's working on some really cool stuff uh actually with the the northern chumash uh and the new national marine sanctuary up there that i'm hoping to have her on to discuss with us
0: indeed yeah we had violet sage walker on who is uh very much part of and i believe on the management committee now for the northern Shumash national marine sanctuary which is you know going under in 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 the final stages of of its establishment and the uh, the boundary issue is currently being discussed and uh the big issue underneath all of that is is whether or not uh wind power would be affected by or uh restricted by the boundary of the national marine sanctuary and I'll just go on the right. I mean, I've been reading about it a lot. And, you know, I personally believe that the boundary ought to be big. And if that restricts wind power in that section of the California coast, I I think that's the way to go here. I mean, those these sanctuaries are really important and uh, I'm for it. You know, I'm for the bigger boundary uh, on that thing. But did you guys talk about um, the National Marine Sanctuary? Was that in is that in the same area, Tyler? I don't know. Well,
1: it's it's just to the north. So the northern Chumash proposed, the proposed uh, uh, Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary is just to the north of Point Conception. Uh, we are in the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, which is to the south of Point Conception. So we were in the, what will be when they do designate it, and I hope they do, it would be the bordering marine sanctuary to the south of the proposed
0: new one. Yeah, I got it. So the adjoining new federal area, um, man, that sounds like a really awesome trip. And, and I don't know, the Limpets program, you know, they're taking these kids out, they're doing these intertidal transects, you know, counting the critters, getting, you know, doing all this monitoring. As you say, it's a longitudinal study. I think, what'd you say, 600 sites?
1: Six over sixty sites, sixty sites along the six hundred miles of California coastline. Thank you. But six thousand individuals a year participate, and again, this is about long term monitoring. So this is greater than you know an individual's singular effort. That's why they did this. It was like, hey, look, we can't do that. No one or two or three or four people can do this. This this needs to be a community project, and so the idea is that you know, as, as cherished and important areas, we need to understand what's happening to these spaces kind of in perpetuity over time. I mean, there's oil spills. There are, there's, there's human harvesting and just, you know, people going out and flipping rocks and there's lobster trapping. There's all sorts of activities that occur along the, in the rocky intertidal area that can have an impact on these spaces. So by studying them, you know, in perpetuity over time, we can understand what those impacts are.
0: Find out what it is, but they also need to add the ROV to the program because you can't take, you can take these kids out there. You can't put them in dive gear. You're not going to put them in the water. That's too, it's too risky, but you could, if the, if the science program included um, a regular survey of a transect in a seagrass bed or in other subsurface areas, I mean, or looking at the status of kelp or looking at uh, the status of uh, urchin barons. I mean, man, that's that's just an added level of data uh, on board the same ship with the same system of data collection. It really can enrich, it seems, the the whole point of the program. It's limpets thinking about it
1: well i don't know and I, this is not i'm not I, here to not try to say, sell I'm anybody not, on I'm
0: just saying it's a good idea I, I I know you're not pushing it but I'm not pushing you know. it
1: I, I i I know that our technology is good and that uh, when you put it in the hands of professionals or children or educators it's going to do amazing things but the 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 bottom line is whenever people are on boats or really interfacing with the water to be able to open that aperture up so that you can see what's under the surface is of tremendous benefit.
0: I would totally dig it. I would totally dig it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a tremendous benefit and, and, uh, you know, it enriches um, the experience of, of, of trying to understand these areas is to be able to visually explore it. That's the cool thing. Um, you can actually sort of move it around. You can go check out different uh, areas, different depth ranges, different, I mean, you know, you're gonna learn a lot simply by observing. As as, uh, as Yogi Berra uh, famously said, you can learn a lot by observing. You can see a lot by observing. What's that quote, that great Yogi Berra quote?
1: I have no idea. That's a quote from your generation, I'm afraid, but, uh, the, the, the fact is like you can, and you can like follow an individual fish around, um, and you can explore the kelp forest up and down the water column. And this technology is not subjected to the limits of the human body. So you can go deeper, you can stay longer, you can be in colder water, uh, you can go to the dark, dark, dark depths where a human could never go, uh, on and on and on. Using this technology for ocean observation is a game changer, and we really ought to, as ocean lovers, seek to put this technology into the hands of our researchers, our ocean managers, our sanctuary managers, our national park managers, into the hands of educators and into the hands of students themselves. Because as you say, you control this thing and there's something just magical. There's It's a big difference between going on YouTube and watching a video of something and then actually controlling it yourself. It's just a huge Are difference in the mind
0: huge difference well first of all you're not sitting in your damn living room on the couch or on the floor or whatever the hell you're doing you're on the boat so you're automatically connected in a different way the the, the famous quote is you can observe a lot by by just watching which is a yogi Berra quote. Yogi. you can observe a lot by just watching that's a, it's so great um well that sounds like a really awesome thing and and you know uh yeah, in 2023. I'm so glad that you've landed in this position. I think it's a perfect job for you and a perfect place for you. I think it brings together all of your skills and and your curiosity and your talent uh, at a cool company and uh like you were saying when we when we started doing this and we met. I mean, I think the whole reason we're doing Coast News today um and and ASPN is is partly from uh the fact that you know I met you. I mean, I was plugging along doing uh, coastal consulting and working with coastal communities on lots of different projects. And you jumped into that and, but I think you were the one who was really saying, you know what, there's, there's, there's something else we could do with all of this. And, and I was pretty frustrated by the fact that the public had so little understanding of the issues that we were talking about when we were working with coastal communities that this Coastal News Today ASPN grew out of that sort of shared frustration and shared interest in moving beyond that, uh, traditional role that we were playing as coastal consultants. So, and here it is, I mean, five is. I'm and a half years later, you're at blue robotics, which is incredible and really, really interesting. And, um, and, and 2023, I got to relocate to Olympia and I got to say, I, you know, I know I'm late getting to this part of the world. I, I uh, being in, in the Puget sound area, but man. I got to tell you Tyler. I'm so happy to be here. You can't believe it. I it's know. such a great. I live in a coastal town finally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I went to law school in Portland at Lewis and Clark, but uh was in the Northwest for for a while, about 8 years, but you know, living in Olympia, Washington, uh, this kind of off the beaten track state capital town is just spectacular. I I think the you know the marine resources around here and getting to know um, getting to know the southern puget sound area um, it's like being in a, a toy store for me there's just so much i want to understand about this area you know and the politics and the history so it's been a great year of transition and i'm also really happy to be up here i'm glad we're still doing plugging away doing this damn podcast network it's been such a great thing to do
1: Well, I'm stoked for you too, Peter. Uh, It's clearly a wonderful place to live. We've had the opportunity to learn a little bit about the Puget Sound area here on this show. And, you know, it's a totally different coastal vibe from Texas, certainly, and and certainly from down here in Southern California, and uh, I'm really stoked that we've been able to explore it together and of course we're still doing the podcast network broadly we're we're still going to be doing planet noah uh, looking to launch that in uh, 2024 um and we're still doing the news very importantly we're still doing the news and um you know i i don't know peter if you want to just quickly tag a couple news stories that you've you found interesting
0: you know, I what I would I do want to talk about the network a little bit first, but yeah, we can hit the, some of the m- more interesting issues that are flying around on Coastal News today and uh, around the American Triangle. But you know, Tyler, I've been watching our our downloads as reported by our Spotify overlords, um, which I think represents a chunk of our listenership around the world. A couple things that that. Uh, I want to just point out to all of the people out there who listen to the American shoreline podcast and all of the other cool shows on this network um, that we are privileged to produce uh, and, and make available is we're, you know, we're, we're coming up to a half a million downloads uh, on the network, uh, which may happen. I believe this year will happen before the end of the year. Um, And that's, that's a segment of our listenership out there, but um, and the other thing that struck me about some of the data that's coming back from Spotify, our kind of year-end wrap-up, is is 16% of our listeners are uh, international and uh, outside the United States, obviously. And, um, you know, it's become a, a really something I continue to be very, very proud of that we created this thing and the people that we get to work with and the stories we get to help tell. Um, it's awesome, Tyler. And, you know, we need, to, we, need to, we need to stop every once in a while and acknowledge the great work of the, all of the hosts on, the, on ASPN and uh, the effort that they put in. It's it's pretty freaking cool.
1: We do. And it's their creativity. It's their uh, interest and curiosity that drives the network and it's the chorus of voices, Peter. And I don't think, you know, in the 5 years we've done this, the importance of talking about the matters of the American shoreline and the ocean has never been higher. We need to share what's going on out there. We need to share it. It's it's becoming increasingly clear that our response to climate change collectively as a society is going to involve the ocean. It's incredibly clear that if we don't talk about it and we don't talk about it well, if we don't tell our stories, uh, others others will step in and manipulate. And, um, and not for good either. So I'm truly honored to uh, be in a position to facilitate
0: that process yeah um you know I, I don't know how many shows have been released on the network it's over i think it's around 1100 now the great show that i'm looking forward to listening to i haven't i haven't got to this one that's came out today uh is helen brawl's latest show uh helen does the north coast chronicles podcast which is such a great show and it's about the great lakes region and she's I got a show out right now re-examining the storm that sunk the Edmund Fitzgerald on North Coast Chronicles. You should check it out on on the network or on Coastal News today. Um, I love Helen's show. Derek's been doing some great work recently talking about what's going on in federal funding for coastal communities. It's super, super important for coastal communities and coastal professionals to really understand this I gotta say tidal wave of federal investment that's headed to the American shoreline and why it's important that we do damn good work with the investments that are being made now so um and one other one I want to highlight is Leslie Ewing's most recent show um about uh about the state of California's coast with Rosanna J from uh, the Los Angeles Times. Um, That's great pronounced Shaw. Thank you. I knew you would know that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Rosanna Shaw, um, who uh, just released a book called California Against the Sea, which is a, you know, she's been covering California coastal issues and and shoreline management. And her and Leslie, uh, it's great. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we get to do. Um, because of you know that we met at a party and and did some work together and and cooked up this whole program and it's uh who the hell knew yeah what you're saying who the hell knew where this was going to lead but it's it's good places.
1: I just want to flag another thing, which is that, uh, and I'm I'm proud of this, Peter. I really am this this particular read. Um, and it's you know this is a chorus. This is about elevating the broad spectrum of voices. And you know, I go out there and I, I see people who uh, purport to be ocean communicators or science communicators or climate communicators. And what I see is a lot of their own face all over the place. And a lot of videos with their face on it. And their voice. And it's a lot of self-promotion. And what I have to say, It perhaps makes me the most proud of this network is the chorus element of it. It's really about listening to other people. It really is. It's about elevating other people's voices and helping them, giving them the microphone, and helping them share their story. I think that's the most important part.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. That is the core principle. And it's something that I remember... When you and I used to sit down at Cherrywood Coffee House over a couple of beers and try to figure out what the hell we were going to do with this network, how it was going to be designed, what we were trying to, to accomplish, um, I knew that you and I were going to do a show. We were pretty settled on that. But it was also we understood very quickly that the perspective that we could bring to the universe of topics on the American Shoreline was simply limited. And and it is limited for any individual. Um and, and if you're really committed to the truth, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a, a space for dialogue and f- for different voices from different perspectives that taken together give you a feel for the larger context of coastal issues and the complexity of the issues that are happening on the American shoreline. And it's a it's a really, really good idea. And I learned so much from all of these hosts and, and their interests and what they care about and the perspective that they bring, um, it's the, yeah, it's the part that I'm most proud of is that that we have developed this chorus, uh, this uh, voices, this dialogue that talks about the coastal issues on the, uh, from a, just a, a, a wide variety of perspectives. And uh, it's awesome. I love it.
1: Me too. What do you say we wrap up?
0: Yeah, um, well, I want to let's wrap up with 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 a little discussion on climate change. You know, COP twenty eight is the Conference of Parties, I believe it's called, which is uh, the big event that's going to be in Dubai coming up soon. But I I think that you know I know one of the things we were talking about when we put this together, you know, five and a half years ago uh, is we we knew that climate change was going to be an emerging issue, duh, not a big deal, but we also wanted to begin to Create uh, a, a body of credible voices that could discuss it intelligently. So we always kind of had our eye on climate as an underlying driving issue on the American shoreline because we're not idiots and uh, not the only ones who understood that. But we really, really were trying to get ahead of that and get get on top of it. And I, I just think that, um, boy, I'm struggling. Uh, I'm struggling with the issue because. Uh, someone I really ex- uh, respect, Katherine Hayhoe, the, the climate scientist from Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, of all places, who is an evangelical Christian and also an incredible climate scientist who has uh, really uh, found her voice on the world stage, talking about how important this issue is and trying to convince uh, folks who are not necessarily um, dedicated to the, to the truth of it um, to really take it seriously. She's done a great job in, her main message right now is the importance of hope and that we can tackle this we can take effective action i love that i i think frequently about what she's trying to do and the voice she's trying to bring to the to the table and then lurking on the other at the other end of the spectrum for me is this lurking feeling that what i am not seeing what i is our capacity to 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 act I'm less concerned about our capacity to understand what's happening with climate change. I think the science is well uh, developed. Uh, the National Climate Assessment uh, that came out this year is, you know, very clear. It's 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 falling into place. What I'm not seeing, and what I'm concerned about, is the institutional capacity to respond on a scale that is uh, relevant to the problem. Um, There are lots and lots of things that are being done. I don't wanna say we can't act. What I'm saying is that it's going to require an extraordinary level of intergovernmental cooperation on a worldwide scale to really get a handle on this damn problem. And I have real doubts there. Uh, And people who are looking at COP28 in, in Dubai, and the chairman of the event here is the, is an oil company executive uh, from the country uh, have real suspicions about about whether we can pull this off whether we can respond effectively and i and i haven't resolved that in my own mind um you know my sense of doubt and my sense of optimism and hope are still in conflict and i'm not quite sure where i'm going to be but i'm looking forward to sort of watching it come along the line and see see what we can learn well all i can say is don't
1: dwell on it too much, because there isn't a whole lot of evidence to suggest at this point in time that we're going to do anything. And uh, what I mean by that is it seems as though we are destined to kind of run off the cliff before we Ugh. make a a change. And, um, you know, it's going to be gradual. It's not going to be the flip of a switch. But what I would say is focus, you know, Catherine Hayhoe is a wonderful uh, climate prophet, I would say. And one of the things that I take away from Catherine's uh, teachings is to remain positive, is to remain positive. There are so many amazing people who are dedicating their lives to this project to this the project of this change of changing human society around the globe so that we can sustain humanity and live on a planet that's thriving and that's going to that's this is a global problem peter that is going to take take time beyond what our lives can afford and to the perspective of an individual human, seems impossible. And I would just say, man, you gotta you gotta keep those positive stories, those people who are dedicating their lives and doing good work. Keep those people right at the forefront.
0: And I think that's kind of Catherine's message: is nothing is gained if you do not uh, approach this challenge with that kind of attitude about the energy and the commitment of of millions of people around the world is certainly not an unfair statement. Um, And real meaningful investments being done. I mean, the Biden administration putting hundreds of millions, billions of dollars really into this subject area and trying to get a handle on it. Um, So I like this is what I'm saying. I'm of that mind. I reside in that space comfortably. I understand why that's important. And I do think there's evidence of real a concrete action, um, so uh, that's that's the good that's the good part. Um, but I think that it, realistically, I like the fact that you said this is not a flip the switch solution. It's not available over the next fifty years, and I'm going to say fifty years. There is a chance to wind down the carbon based economy and fossil fuels as a instrument a primary uh, source of energy for the world economy and everything we freaking do uh, that's going to take some time and we're going to cause the the circumstances going to get more dire uh, in the meantime um, but I do think in the long run you know the earth is it's sort of the Ghia philosophy right the earth the Earth doesn't care about the outcome of this. The the we care about it, but the Earth is going to continue on. And if we screw it up, and 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 we, you know, the capacity of life on on, you know, I'm not one of these people who believes that life on Earth is in at risk. I think it's uh it's certainly going to be changed massively. It's certainly going to undergo uh, and continues to undergo uh, massive impacts from climate change. But ultimately, the Earth doesn't give. Give a damn. Um, and the and the critters are going to do what the critters do. And uh, so I don't know. In some sense, I have this sort of deeper Gia sense that um, what we're really fighting about is our own comfort. Um, but I don't know. So I'm, I'm still working through it. I'm still working through still it. Still
1: working through it. We're all working through it. It's about, I think, the other piece of it, Peter, that um, is hard for us humans is control. This idea that even though this is, you know, there's an anthropogenic problem at the core of it, even th- that the idea, collective humanity is not controlled by any individual or any system. It is, it is a natural, wild thing. And that is a tough thing for us to contend with. I mean, throughout human history, we have tried to create systems of governance, systems of religion, to
0: control ourselves. Organize, at least, you could say. Uh, you know, Organize and coordinate our understanding and actions, yeah. And control to a certain, certainly, as an underlying driver, yeah.
1: But at the end of the day, this is a wild problem. That does at this point in time, we have not evolved. We do not have the technological solution. Again, I I use that idea in a previous show. This idea of social technology. We yeah. don't have the social technology yet. We have to invent it. And I I'm you know as as a person who's dedicated my life to this professional space, I think that we're making progress on that front. Um, but I also understand that there is going to be. It's going to be a long road, and in my lifetime, I won't see a quote-unquote solution. It's going to be a slow bend toward what I hope will be progress.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and look, politics and economic interests are going to be a part of it, there because that's what we live in. We live in a political world. Uh, people discount politics and what politics is 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 sort of the art of relating to each other in an organized system of decision making uh, politics is is how we make choices as uh, as a group of people um however that group is geographically defined or nationally defined uh, politics is the process of making choices as a group as a group and um those Choices are influenced, if to a great degree, by the economic interests that are at stake. Uh, there isn't any doubt that the transitions that are going to be required here are having going to have. Everyone knows massive, massive economic implications. Um, not all of which are bad in the aggregate, but certainly there are going to be winners and losers. And w- that's where I, I, I just. You know, the opportunities to get off the reservation here, to ignore the problem, to exploit the situation for economic gain are so powerful uh, and and are to be expected that I'm not 100% sure we're, we, we, we've got, the as you say, the social technology to operate on the scale of the problem. That's what I'm getting at, the scale of the problem, which is you know, there's forty gigatons of carbon added to the atmosphere every year. the number may be higher um and it's persistent, right It lasts for a hundred years uh so everything is being added that the the drawdown here is going to require uh solutions on a massive scale, and I'm just looking around going, hmm. I can see the technological development. I can see some options to really make some dents and things. The question I have is whether we can get organized enough to put it on, uh, put it on the ground and make it work. That's my, there's, there's my dilemma. This is the dilemma coming to the end of 2023 that I'm still in. I'm in that dilemma right there.
1: Well, I guess we're going to all have to stay tuned and see how Peter's dilemma (laughs) matures.
0: (laughs) yeah everybody yeah but tyler it's been a great 2023 congratulations on blue robotics i'm so happy for you i think you absolutely are fantastic it's been a privilege to to do coastal news today and to do this show with you over the years and uh i i really am um, looking forward to where we go from here uh, because it's been a hell of a cool journey so far likewise Thank you much. And to all the listeners out there, uh, thank you for being part of the American Shoreline Podcast Network family and the community of voices that we brought together. Thank you for reading Coastal News today. Uh, We sure could use some advertising sponsorships. You know, We don't really talk about this much, Tyler, and we should. But I don't think either one of us in some deep way give a shit about it. But we absolutely have to have enough funding to keep this going. And we need some sponsorships. So if you've listened through this show... Uh, let us know. You can reach out to Tyler and I um, and put together a sponsor package. We've got an incredible audience around the world now and an incredible audience of coastal professionals around the U.S. It is a perfect place for you to uh, reach your, your customers and people you care about. So um, if, you're, if you've got the opportunity, give us a call. We'd love to have you as a sponsor on the American Shoreline Podcast and Coastal News Today, Tyler.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for listening, y'all. Oh,
0: the winds only know Good times around the bend
2: Get my car I'm going too far Never coming back again There's night with you Birds on the lawn Sunlight at all. Singing while